Hi, I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the fourth trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth trimester care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, this is Sarah Trott. Welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Esther Gallagher, and we are here for another wonderful show with you today. I want to remind you that you can sign up for our newsletter on fourthtrimesterpodcast.com. And if you are interested in sponsoring our show, you can go to patreon.com and become a patron of ours. So thank you so much to our existing patrons. And if you're interested, please do sign up. Hi, Esther. How are you doing? Hey, Sarah. I'm just great. How have you been? Wonderful. Thank you. Me too. And especially since um, just last week, I went to UC Berkeley and heard the best speaker that I've heard in a very, very long time. And as you know, you know, I've been in this world a long time Mm -hmm. and I feel like uh, finally, finally, the best kind of documentation of the history and politics of breastfeeding has finally, finally come to us in the form of this fantastic book, which I want to recommend that anybody who is even thinking of having a child uh, read as soon as possible. And even if you aren't thinking of that, just read this book. Everybody should read this book. (laughs) That's how strongly I feel about it. It has the best title of all. It's called The Big Letdown. And the subtitle is How Medicine, Big Business, and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. And it's by the amazing Kimberly Seals Allers. I want to read the inside flap. And here we go. Pediatricians say you should, but it's okay if you don't. The hospital says breast is best, but sends you home with formula just in case. Your sister-in-law says, of course you could. Your mother says, well, I didn't. You turned out just fine. Celebrities are photographed nursing in public, yet breastfeeding mothers are asked to cover up in malls or on airplanes. Breastfeeding is a private act, yet everyone has an opinion about it. How did feeding our babies get so complicated? Journalist and infant health advocate Kimberly Seals Allers breaks breastfeeding out of the realm of personal choice and shows our broader connection to an industrialized food system that begins at birth, the fallout of feminist ideals, and the federal policies that are far from family-friendly. The Big Letdown uncovers the multi-billion dollar forces battling to replace mother's milk and the failure of the medical establishment to protect infant health. Weaving together research and personal stories with original reporting on medicine, big pharma, and hospitals, Kimberly Seals Allers shows how mothers and babies have been abandoned by all the forces that should be supporting families from the start and what we can do to help. 
awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, this is the big deal right here. And we are the luckiest two podcasters in the world because Kimberly is has agreed to be on our podcast and she's with us today. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, how are you? How are you both? Ecstatic. <laughs> Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having me. What a great introduction. Oh. <laughs> well, you're you're a big deal. But why don't you give us your version? to start, and then we'll launch in talking about the book. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, you know, my most important job is that I'm a mother, so I always like to say that first to my two Mm -hmm. beautiful children. Um, In between doing that, I and prior to that, I had an amazing career as a journalist, um, uh, as a writer at Fortune magazine, I worked for the New York Post, was a senior editor at Essence for many years, and really just began to use my passion for writing and communication Um, to tackle some of the issues that really began to speak to me when I became a mother, you know, particularly birth and breastfeeding and why these issues are so complicated um, in our society. So I've been able to, you know, really kind of lend my skills and my passion to kind of writing about these issues, more from a sociological perspective. Um, The Big Letdown is actually my fifth book. Um, So I'm particularly proud of it because it really kind of allows me to kind of dig into the research and and really ask the tough questions that I think mothers need to be asking. Um, In addition, I do a lot of work with the Kellogg Foundation. For the past three years, I've been running a pilot project in Detroit and Philadelphia that's really focused on how do we make communities more supportive of breastfeeding, because we know there's been a lot of great effort at hospitals, which is important, but for most women in America, a hospital is only a two to three day stay. And so if we're really going to get support, we need to make sure that we're mothers eat, work, live, pray, play, worship, are also supportive places. So we've been, um, I've been working on a project to kind of change those community environments. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm, I try to get some sleep. <laughs> no easy task, I'm no sure. <laughs> easy task, but certainly really proud of um, uh, the work and the experiences and, and having this conversation with you today about, you know, kind of, the culmination of probably what has been about three years of work with the big letdown. I'm wondering if you could, if you want to tell us anything about your work so far at the Kellogg Foundation in terms of any sort of takeaways for community support for breastfeeding. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, one of the first things that has been so pivotal and I feel so critical for our success has been my framework, which is always whatever the question, the answers in the community. And so when we started to look for these solutions, we did not go in, you know, with our degrees and our, you know, kind of medical knowledge and everything else evidence-based. We actually saw the community as the source of knowledge and we saw them as the experts because they know the community better than we do. And so really they, we designed a program simply to leverage their experiential knowledge into a way to, for them to design an intervention, and then we support them to execute it. So this idea of kind of it being community powered and community led is an exciting um, approach that I think will be uh, really critical for the next phase of our work. Um, 
it does require those who have often been in leadership to step aside and, and allow another way of thinking to lead. And mm-hmm. so, um, it, but it's really, really important. And I'm looking forward to, by the springtime, really sharing more concrete findings from that project. That is fantastic. You know, it makes me feel like it's one more manifestation of something that is in the zeitgeist. Mm. Because while so much attention is being put on what, you know, many of us think is just an absurdly crazy situation in terms of the U.S. administration right now, Mm. on the other hand, I just see the response as so positive you know, and that it is a community-led response at this larger level, you know, this this gigantic level. And so to me, what's so gorgeous about what you just described is that, you know, you're seeing the results, you're seeing how and why it works. And that's just such a beautiful, and and this, you know, what you're doing affects everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Breastfeeding affects everybody. It sure does. And also, right. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it it affects all women. It affects men. It affects, you know, children. It affects our public health outcomes. Yes. Um, and some of these connections that I try to make in the book show that it touches on so many areas of life that either whether you are a mother or not, you should be concerned about it. Some of them you might want to be outraged about. Um, and that we, you know, as a community of citizens or a community of women, you know, going back to your point, uh, previously should, you know, should really be advocating for. And I think that it is a problem that breastfeeding has been relegated to this personal choice issue when it really is a public health issue, when it really is about structural barriers. And that's very dangerous because when women don't reach their goals, they consider it a personal failure when it is absolutely a structural failure. And we have to stop looking at each other and blaming ourselves and harboring these guilty feelings without looking up. And saying, you know what, there's actually a system that has set me up to fail before I could begin. And those of us who are able to overcome that are really the outliers <laughs> um, in the big letdown. And so we really want to end this way of looking at it as such a personal issue and really start making these bigger connections so that we can use this awakening that we're all having as women right now as part of a catalyst for, for change. I think it's fantastic. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, and I think you make it clear in the book, I think that there, that if you look at the history of birth and breastfeeding in America, uh, it's hard, at least hard for me not to draw a conclusion that, that this was skillfully set up to blame the mother mm-hmm. <laughs> and to disempower the mother and to disenfranchise the child from the mother. So um, again, why I love your book, even though I've yet to read it cover to cover because I just got my copy. Um, Well, no, you make some really valid points when we think about it. Birthing was something that women did with other women, right? And, you know, it was considered not any work because birthing was a natural process that was simply assisted by women, midwives, or, you know, just another woman. And so really when, with all due respect, men, you know, kind of insinuated themselves into that process and really said, hey, women shouldn't be doing this. Um, Many, many things change and very few of them are for the better. So um, again, you know, this historical perspective allows us to see a little bit of how we got 
where we are today and most most significantly what we need to do to change it. Yeah, I might put in a little quick plug for a movie called Why Not Home. Have you seen it? I have not seen that one, but I love the title and I think I know where it's going. <laughs> and and what's wonderful about it from personal from a particular perspective is that it's actually interviews mainly well, not mainly, I mean, it, it goes far and wide, but uh, it starts with um, physicians who've made cho- the choice to have their babies at home. Mm, interesting. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, radical from from that standpoint. So you're going to love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to look for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it does a wonderful job right in the middle of the film of, of looking at the history of obstetrics so critical. I mean, you know, kind of what happened when we moved from the home into a more medicalized environment is a critical turning point where many things changed. Um, And, you know, in terms of the whole birthing process and also, you know, breastfeeding, which kind of needs the baby for it to happen properly in those very early moments after birth. So um, again, it's a very pivotal and critical uh, area because it shapes so much afterwards. A lot of our listeners are probably pregnant for the first time right now. (laughs) And I think that they'll be really interested to hear an alternative perspective. What would you want to say to those expecting moms? Wow, so much to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Read the book. (laughs) So much to say. I mean, one of the things that I always say about to to expecting moms is I feel like we have to tell them the truth. You know, one of the things I discuss in terms of messaging is that we've done a... um, that we could have done a better job in how we communicate breastfeeding because breastfeeding is difficult, you know, and I think sometimes people see the, you know, what I call the meadow malaise and the, and the green fields and the beautiful calm and, and which, which can happen that that can be part of the experience and often will be, but perhaps not in the early days. Right. And so what happens is when we create this disconnect of experience where people expect it to be one way because of what the images of the images they are fed and then they have a completely different experience because they went to a hospital and the baby was taken from them and then you know they didn't have skin to skin and then all these other things that actually interrupt the flow of milk and they had all these other challenges and nurses who took your baby and things like that when they find breastfeeding difficult they think something is wrong with me this is not the image that I've been fed about what breastfeeding is. And so they stop. And so that's where we really have to do a better job of being honest that breastfeeding is difficult, you know, because many of our hospitals have made backdoor multi-million dollar deals for the privilege of, you know, offering us free formula. Many of those nurses who take care of us have gone to lunches and had free donuts from the infant formula rep. And that may be influencing how aggressively they help support us with breastfeeding. So when we, when we can have an honest conversation that breastfeeding is extremely rewarding, extremely rewarding. I always talk about it. And I think I mentioned UC Berkeley, like the Nike commercial, right? Like Nike doesn't (laughs) sell you on easy. They're not interested in easy. They're like, they want you, if you want to overcome a challenge, if you want to do something and make yourself feel good, because we all know that you feel good when you do something difficult and accomplish it. So that's the story I want women to understand that breastfeeding cannot, is not always easy. And that, that we have to separate the act of breastfeeding from the experience of breastfeeding and the act may be, you know, not that difficult and there's plenty of professional help for that, but the experience can be really, really challenging. It can be isolating. It can be scary. And so we have to begin to prepare them for both. So 
I want all women, uh, all expecting moms to be prepared for the experience of breastfeeding, but with the full knowledge that it is so worth it. It is like climbing that mountain with your, you know, with that Nike song in the background, whichever one gets you moving and that Mm -hmm. feeling that you will have when you get to the top and you meet your breastfeeding goal, whether that is two weeks or two years, it will be so amazing and so worth it. Um, So that's important. And then, you know, the other thing is that also because breastfeeding, we say is natural, people also feel that if something happens or something's going wrong, then it must be something wrong with me. And again, please, you know, seek help. It is, you know, it is, it is natural under natural circumstances, but the U.S. is an unnatural place to be breastfeeding. I just have to tell you. Um, now, certainly those in your, your area may have a very, you know, there are certain pockets, right? In New York City, if you go to Park Slope, I mean, in, in Brooklyn, there, there are certain places where there is a culture for breastfeeding. And, you know, God bless all the women who are, who are giving birth and breastfeeding in those areas. But for those who may be outside of those wonderful supportive zones, um, perhaps you can travel to it or <laughs> try to um, just remember that the experience can be a bit challenging, but so worth it. Yeah. You know, in 1977, 78, when I was a new mom, had a home birth, the first few weeks of breastfeeding was just, I mean, the word challenging doesn't even touch on it. But uh, two things. I was going to breastfeed come hell or high water, (laughs) kind of like the Nike commercial. Mm -hmm. And I was in... A, a small but interconnected community of, of hippie midwives. And they were, they all did it too, you know? So I had those two elements, despite being far from home and uh, outside of the community I grew up in and, and, you know, very, very new to this community. I did have those two elements in a larger setting that was about you know, empowerment of the feminine. And my Mm -hmm. comment is, was going to be, you know, just like breastfeeding, self-empowerment and community empowerment isn't easy, especially at first, right? All of these things are going to be challenging, but they all metaphorically interrelate in this way. And I just am so, so pleased (laughs) that you've done such a brilliant job of, of tying together all these elements and doing the critique of the, the larger disempowerment model and disempowerment system that we live in, Mm -hmm. Um, which as you do such a good job in your book showing, it's nothing new. We've been living with this for a very long time in America. And so, um, you know, it's, it's incremental steps at this point, but I do feel like not, you know, with the help of your book, we're, we're ready to crack this open, you know, and really shed some light on it. Um, I agree. Yeah. Would you, would you like to do a little, you're such a wonderful reader. (laughs) Would you like to do a little um, reading? I really appreciated um, a kind of a political connection that you made in your book. Mm -hmm. Um, Starting on page 216. 
Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to read. But just dig in. In early 2011, U.S. Surgeon General Regina M. Benjamin issued a call to action to support breastfeeding, an unprecedented report urging mothers to breastfeed longer and pushing for the removal of key barriers to breastfeeding. Dr. Benjamin, a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, was a rising star of the medical community. In 1995, she was the first African-American woman to be elected to the American Medical Association Board of Trustees. She gained notoriety following Hurricane Katrina as one of the only physicians treating patients in her Katrina-ravaged community of Biolabatra in Alabama. Her nomination was a boon for family medicine. The call to action laid out steps for hospitals, physicians, nurses, and lactation consultants for community engagement. Advocates cheered that America's doctor was a breastfeeding ally and rallied around the call to action. But the report was directed more toward policymakers and institutions, and a call to action is not a mandate or law. Yes, it provided more evidence to push for policy change, but without the groundswell of women demanding change, policy can seem like a solution to an issue with no problem. Mm-hmm. Forget the feminine mystique. For years, breastfeeding has been the problem without a name, the problem that was not a problem. Infant formulas heralded the nutritional quality and safety of their products, creating no reason to complain. By promoting the idea that babies were just fine and mothers were just fine, there was no outrage and no need to fix anything. This is very dangerous from the perspective of shifting cultural norms. Social movements are, by definition, collective actions in which the populace is alerted, educated, mobilized over time to challenge the power holders to redress social problems or grievances and restore critical social values. Sometimes social problems are as blatantly obvious as police brutality or domestic violence. Those are problems people actually see with vivid images, bruises, bloodshed, and in these days, footage from a cell phone camera posted on YouTube. Though the internet did not yet exist in the 1970s, similar tactics were used then to mount one of the most successful movements in breastfeeding history, created in response to the unnecessary deaths of infants in Africa and other developing nations where babies were literally dying from infant formula. In 1974, the British charity War on Want published The Baby Killer, in which the journalist Mike Muller wrote a dramatic account of the tactics used by formula companies to capture their market. The Baby Killer had a powerful cover picture showing a severely malnourished child trapped inside a baby bottle. The report also included other tragic images of impoverished and malnourished infants. Other reports and studies followed, including a critical consumer's union investigation of food and pharmaceutical industries and a book, The Nutrition Factor, by the Brookings Institution scholar Alan Berg. These damning reports prompted the World Health Organization to call for a review of corporate sales practices and to advise member governments to consider action in 1974. In 1975, a documentary called Bottle Babies was released. Filmed in Kenya, it was filled with powerful visual images of starving, malnourished, bottle-fed infants. In one scene, a mother is shown scooping water from a filthy puddle and mixing it with baby formula. Another scene showed a graveyard full of infants with their graves marked with bottle and formula cans. In Kenya, as in other parts of the world, it is customary to bury the infant with their most valued possession, and the formula was it. The film was a critical step in the global movement to curb inappropriate marketing of infant formula and was a highly effective tool in creating awareness of the health problems caused by bottle feeding. 
One researcher defined social movements as the collective enterprises to establish a new order of life. In that regard, the push to limit infant formula marketing in developing countries was a success. But by the same rubric, we also see the gaping hole in the U.S. breastfeeding movement. For if you want a new order, you have to see something wrong with your current order. Mm -hmm. Here in the well-heeled USA, it was hard to frame the problem of breastfeeding. Babies weren't visibly dying. There were no heart-wrenching optics of sick and malnourished babies. No picture of an American mother collecting dirty water with which to feed formula to her baby. On the contrary, technological advances made milk substitutes safer. Formula-fed babies were plump. In fact, the infant formula companies made sure of that by creating and sponsoring infant growth charts based on typical gain for formula-fed babies, often making breastfed babies look underweight. Women couldn't see a problem. Most mothers today still do not. This was particularly difficult since the framing of the problem had long been co-opted by the physicians and pharmaceutical companies who made the unpredictable nature of breastfeeding the problem. But there was a serious public health problem. However, instead of making women aware of the structural barriers and the very real dangers of having a commercial entity control what you feed your baby, women were messaged about the benefits of breast milk. The movement saw educating women with medical information instead of rallying them around the structural barriers to breastfeeding as a solution to the problem. Many of the barriers are so woven into our fiber of our existence that we no longer recognize them as odd. We take them as normal. Karl Marx called on workers to become aware of their oppressed status and to develop a class consciousness. He also held that a social movement will require leaders to sharpen their awareness of the oppressed. They would need to help workers overcome feelings of false consciousness or attitudes that do not reflect workers' objective position in order to organize a revolutionary movement. Similarly, one of the challenges faced by women's liberation activists of the late 1960s and early 70s was to convince women that they were being deprived of their rights and of socially valued resources. But breastfeeding isn't viewed or framed as a societal problem. As we discussed in the previous chapter, breastfeeding has not been included in the reproductive rights conversation. As women fought to figure out how to have control over when they have children, there was never any conversation about the right to feed the children that we did have. What will it take to transform breastfeeding into a broadly supported social movement? Social scientists say mobilizing people for action requires three main characteristics. To start, there needs to be a level of discontent with the way things are, based mainly on how people perceive their situation. Then people must feel they have a right to their goals, that they deserve better than what they have. And lastly, there needs to be a shared perception that members can end their relative deprivation only through collective action. So there... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nicely laid out. Um, this, you know, the the three main characteristics: um, a level of discontent with the way things are. Um, I'm curious to ask Sarah. You know, you've had, I think, what you would probably consider success with breastfeeding it you know you got over the initial hurdles pretty well and it got to be pretty straightforward Mm -hmm. how long before you had to go back to work I took six months off as my maternity leave Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to have that time Mm -hmm. now so there's an interesting statement 
right? Mm -hmm. Lucky enough to have that time. I will say that I think that the fact that in this day and age, women are having to frame their time off from work, (laughs) vis-a-vis breastfeeding, et cetera, and and baby care as luck, uh, meaning to, in my mind, determined by a company, Uh, and a company that no doubt is um, concerned with profits, right? Making the bottom line. That's not luck. Right. Well, I consider myself incredibly fortunate compared to a lot of women, even here in Silicon Valley, which is quite forward thinking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, so and I think Kimberly, that, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a really valid point. I mean, I think people do consider themselves lucky um, when they do have that. My job, uh, my my company, um, when I had my second child, they would hold your job for up to a year, um, and I was lucky enough to figure out how to stay away from work unpaid, however, for up to a year. But to your point, we shouldn't have to win the employer lottery to be able to mother, right? Mm-hmm. That's not something that all of us can do. And because we have framed this ability to breastfeed on a personal choice, we don't fight for it as a universal right, right? Because really six months is lucky, but it's not, I mean, people get that in London for nothing. You know what I mean? Right. You know, that's not even a, 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 a global standard for what, for what we could have. So again, this idea of not having a, a kind of universal, unilateral, this is what everybody deserves. And everybody should get it and not us just um, being, you know, able to look at our fortunate circumstances, but being able to say that this to be able to mother, right, should not depend on luck. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And we're the only industrialized nation that does not have a federal paid maternity leave policy, you know, and, and it's an embarrassment and something that we all should be up in arms about. Mm-hmm. Um and so really thinking about how mothering is valued in this country over profits, over everything else is a very important, uh, another consideration that needs to be made. You know, for, for many years, I've been a doula in San Francisco since 1992, and I did midwifery care for rural clients prior to that. Um, but since coming to San Francisco and, you know, being working for clients who who primarily are in one way or another connected to tech, right? Um, uh, I've often had occasion to say to moms and dads, you know, uh, I was fortunate enough to give birth prior to the Reagan administration and be poor enough <laughs> to be able to stay home with my kids, mm-hmm. right? That, that that's always, in some sense, that's always been the setup, right? You either have to be very poor to be fortunate enough to be home with your children. Now, mm-hmm. I lived or in very rural, rich. Re- mm-hmm. right, or very rich, exactly right, upper middle class at the very least, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I lived in a rural county. I, I was a white mom. I was typical of women of the day who were getting AFDC, uh, a.k.a. welfare, 
um, and food stamps. Uh, I had two children, and that was typical. And Reagan came along, and through sexist, racist tactics, took that away from people. And, and for many years, I've said to people, you know, I was fortunate to be poor because it meant that I could be home with my children for the duration of the 27 months that I breastfed and beyond. You could, you could be a stay-at-home mom for three years on welfare back then. Right. Now, if you, but if you lived in an inner city and were paying rents, et cetera, et cetera, and had the misfortune of not being a white mom with 2.3 children or whatever the statistic was at the time, that wasn't the reality either. And I'm wondering, Kimberly, if you want to speak to that at all. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it's clear that I think that what moms these days feel fortunate to get is unfortunate. <laughs> um, now, uh, individually, how that works for people is up to them. I feel like I'm enough of a feminist to say, hey, if you want to be doing your work before your baby hits two or whatever, great. Find the way that that's going to work for you. But the fact that it's not even an option right. is what I object to. I agree. And I, and I think yeah. that what happens is we find ourselves forced into these, what I call these fake choices, right? So we think we're making a choice, you know, to go back to work after six months, but it's really just all we have, right? They're just bad options. And we're trying to make the best of the bad options. So we've heard these stories of mothers trying to piece together some sort of maternity leave by saving their vacation and accumulating sick days and, you know, trying to tag it onto holidays. And some people start scheduling C-sections just because they could get an extra week based on Christmas. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? So mm. what people have to do to make mothering work is, 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 is completely unfortunate. And, and, and to your point, um, these are often not real choices, but bad options from which we choose. And then as I see it on the other end, people begin to feel bad, often feel bad about these options. And then they're battling it out on, in, on the on the internet in the so-called mommy wars, right? Because mm. they're looking to justify and defend the false choices they were forced into making. And so it really is, it is not about choice. It is about bad options and people trying to make the best of those situations. The other thing I wanted to say about the economics, this is a very true story. I was in CVS or Walgreens or whatever, and two mothers were online in front of me. One of them had uh, purchased formula. And so one woman said, oh, I didn't qualify for WIC, so I breastfed because formula is so expensive. And the other <laughs> mother said, well, I did qualify for WIC, so I get formula. Okay. How did that work? Right. Yeah. Right. So you see the economics um, are, are, are upside down, mm -hmm. upside down, right? So, um, and it sometimes it works that because low-income women, you know, are receiving um, formula from what appears to be a government-endorsed, you know, what appears to be a government-endorsed product, you know, they are not always encouraged to breastfeed. You know, meanwhile, those subsidies, those subsidies that WIC provides make the price on the on the shelf very expensive for everybody else. Yeah. Very you know, expensive. that's very interesting because and I'm I I don't have the documentation with me, but I do remember 
And this may have just been local to San Francisco, maybe a California initiative. I'm not sure. But um, probably back in the maybe 90s or early 2000s, probably 90s. Uh, because of this, that somebody uh, making note of this about WIC, that it was clearly favoring formula, somebody got busy and said, no dice, this is wrong. What we need to be doing is incentivizing breastfeeding, and we need to voucherize breastfeeding for moms so that they get extra groceries. Mm-hmm. And, and that has <laughs> you know, happened. like that that's has what happened. should happen, right? Absolutely. I mean, not that we should take nourishment away from women who either choose or are forced from whatever angle to bottle feed. Like, I, I wouldn't want that to be the outcome. But let's face it, how hungry are you, Sarah? <laughs> right? I mean, you're starving when you're breastfeeding and you need that that nutrition. You need that nutrition. And also it's just it's really about what what are we valuing? You know, what should be the norm, the normative infant feeding and what should be the backup, right? And how do our policies actually support that, right? So the AAAP says it's best, the World Health Organization says it's best, every physician will say it's best, but you know, where's the support for that? And if you're a low income woman, you have more support to get formula. So again, well, and you get more support to be back in the low paid uh, workforce. Let's not put to right. Like that's the real deal. It's like, how quickly can we tear you away from your child and get you back working at McDonald's for nothing? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And so it's, you know, there are many, many gaps in the system and these are the structural um, failures that we really want to start talking about instead of, you know, kind of clamoring as women fighting against each other over bad options that aren't really choices. Yeah. It does feel like a set of bad options. <laughs> and that's the reality though. Mm-hmm. Like I really do feel grateful genuinely. Yeah. And I think a lot of women in my, would, would love to be in my position actually to take sure. time off. Yeah. No doubt about it. <laughs> it is just, that's just the reality. That is. But what if, and this is really the end point of my book, what if we could change the reality? I mean, I kind of take you through a story about this guy named Howard Moskowitz who kind of democratized, he was a marketer, he democratized spaghetti sauce. And, you know, as the story goes, the Campbell's company brought him in because they were just losing so much money with Prego. And what, what Howard Moskowitz discovered was that people didn't like what they didn't know, right? So he created all of these variations, like chunky and extra chunky and garden, whatever, which before people would have said they didn't like, but they didn't know what they had in front of them. Like they only had the options in front of them from which to choose. So I don't know if I like super chunky, if all I know is sweet and marinara, but if someone showed me something that wasn't in my realm of, of, of knowledge, another option, then I actually might like that. And, and the point is that we we are only looking at what we have and we have to reimagine something new. We have to look at other countries where they are doing a better job. We have to, you know, really look at our policies, which many people are fighting for, but not getting the support. You know, hopefully we may be able to get some movement on the family leave act here. Um, but we have to reimagine something new and not just look at what's in front of us and try to feel lucky. Oh, get lucky, right? Try to get lucky as people try to plan themselves. Young women, I speak to them. What companies can they get into, you know, pre-pregnancy that have the better maternity uh, leaves? And, you know, like it's it's all a setup. It's all a setup. 
And so, um, and so we really have to reimagine, reimagine what it is that we need and what we want and then go get it. Yeah. You know, so um, often I've spoken with uh, parents, both, you know, both male and female parents, they're with a so-called startup and they're one of the first in their company to take any kind of um, parental leave and their company has established no protocols whatsoever. And (laughs) you can believe that I get right in there and say, here's what you should be telling them you're going to do. Right, right. (laughs) Right. Not here's what you should ask for. Not, you know, here's what you can expect. But here's what here's the reality of parenting. Here's what you need. Uh, What the heck? Just say so. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right? I mean, mean, what's the worst that can happen? They'll just say no. Let's create the new normal and then start holding people accountable. I did a talk at Google after I um, spent time at UC Berkeley and, you know, again, a very generous company with all sorts of, um, you know, generous policies and, and women felt lucky. That's that's exactly what they said over and over again. They showed me the nursing mom's room and, you know, mm-hmm. just feeling lucky about winning this employer lottery, um, which is wonderful, but not sustainable because we want something for all mothers, you know what I'm saying? And, and something that could work, that actually works for everybody. Um, right. And the more we don't look at that as something that everybody deserves and not focus on, you know, our personal situation, then we can kind of move, hopefully we can try to move this forward and get more people involved in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think of this little social incursion? <laughs> I have been a postpartum doula for many, many years. And uh, I think these big companies should be, uh, and and small ones too, by the way. I mean, there are very small companies that are highly profitable. Let's face it. Um, I I would like to see them hiring uh, cadre of postpartum doulas who are well trained to really help parents in the first six weeks uh, navigate that very challenging early period and get that breastfeeding support along with the family leave, like. Let's let's set the bar appropriately high <laughs> and have every family, not just those that work for profitable companies. Um, you know, I mean, in my mind, it's well past time when we the part of the community, the community part of the social movement would be that there are people in your community available to you when you go through that transition in the postpartum recovery period that come right into your home and help you do it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, it's um it's a, such a critical time and you know, again, it's those early days of breastfeeding that can that often people um, you know, get overwhelmed. They get so overwhelmed and they could really use someone. I know even for me, you know, I was having challenges by the time the lactation consultant got to me, um, you know, I was really on the verge of of quitting, you know, and mm-hmm. so really having multiple layers of support is And in your important. story, Kimberly, mm-hmm. in your story, you had to leave your home right. to seek them out. Yes. And, you know, I say this all the time. Poor Sarah's heard it till she's like, you know, ready to put cotton in her ears. Like, why, while you were healing and recovering and your breasts were engorged and 
you know, you weren't really in a state to be behind the wheel of a car. Why were you having to leave your home to get support? Mm. That's just nuts. <laughs> that is, And it's not you know. that's nuts, right? right it's right. not you. You needed the support. And it's so interesting because now that you say that, that is something that never crossed my mind. Really? <laughs> never crossed my mind. <laughs> Like of all the insanity of all the, and like, I was grateful to have a car and I was yes. grateful that I knew where to go and it never dawned on me. Why should I have to leave my home? That is such a great point. I mean, these are the things that we don't even think about because we, we don't even have them in our, our sphere of possibility. You know what I'm saying? Right. That's exactly my point. Like yeah. something so simple would not occur to us because we're so used to that not being anything that's available. Right. Um but uh, in but Australia, yeah, in Sweden, point. in so many countries, it's just part of the social network. The government, you pay taxes and your government gives you a doula, mm, mm, right? How beautiful. You know, they're called different things. Like in, in Australia, it's just, you know, the visiting nurse. But she's a postpartum doula. She comes every day and she does all the things that help you out. Right. And everybody get one gets one, no matter how far out in the outback you live. <laughs> right, right, right. So um yeah, like why don't we have that? And the same is true for a hospital as well. This realm of possibilities that people just aren't aware of. Things like when you hear stories of people saying they didn't get to touch their baby immediately or have skin to skin, maybe they didn't think it was the option. I think there's this this preconception that the hospital is doing everything the right way. Mm-hmm. You're entrusting an authority. The hospital is the authority because the most important thing is your baby's health and medical safety. And so there's no questioning that because obviously, or so one would think, everything the hospital is doing is correct. Mm-hmm. And scientifically based. I it, Again, Sarah, you are going to so love this book because... Kimberly does such a great job of of calling to task this so-called scientific method of hospital obstetrics. Like it's really not, you know, it might be sterile, but beyond that, (laughs) you know, serious flaws. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, we live in California and and certainly in um, the Bay Area, there's been a long history of fighting for you know, women and family health, um, evidence-based birth, but we still have a ways to go. And there's still the orientation that separates parents from their children at critical moments without really showing that that's what's in the best interest medically of the children. And I've got, you know, five examples that are rolling around inside my head at this moment. So I'm not going to even talk to one, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's a whole subject. Um, uh, Again, which Kimberly does such a beautiful job of doing. And and I think the movie that I pointed to and other movies that we know of from the popular, you were, you, we were talking, Sarah, about the business of being born earlier. And so, you know, stuff is getting out there. And is circulating. And I will just say that 38 years ago, when I had my daughter at home, I thought, by the time my daughter has a baby, everybody who's low risk will be having their babies at home. But 
wow, was I wrong. <laughs> so. Well, you know, we can keep hoping. Um, <laughs> well, and I think, and I now think we're seeing more birth work. centers. We're definitely seeing more birth centers. So it may not be home, but hopefully more of a home-like home -like environment. Um, certainly an alternative to hospitals must be must be more um, available and accessible. Um, so we have to keep keep pushing. Yeah, I think I think American women maybe are waking up to the intersectionality of all of these issues, and that you know there is um, a really that uh, there is your as you point to in that wonderful passage you read, like there is a kind of a, a cracking open of the, the intelligence around what's happening to families in America. And it, it's happening. I think, I think we're going to see a kind of fluorescence around this subject. Um, one of the reasons I think so is that, uh, you know, in the same year that Sarah and I decided to do this podcast, there are like all kinds of little podcasts specifically about postpartum and parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Lots, which lots, is great because suddenly. I think, I think that, you know, the more we are having honest conversations, the better. I mean, that's also been kind of like the, um, you know, one of the benefits of social media is that people are kind of revealing kind of honesty, the honesty side of like this is what my body looks like and this is the way I feel right now and you know some people have been brave enough to really keep it you know as they say real um and so that's really you know and that's really important and these podcasts are important so we have multiple conversations and multiple perspectives and if someone's interested in a home birth they can know they can find a, a community um and and get information if someone's interested in you know, in the hospital, but, but more of a um, vaginal delivery. Like we just have to create levels and levels and levels of conversation and support um, being open that there is no one way and really just supporting women on their own journey um, and helping them kind of get there on their own. Yeah. We're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes, Kimberly, mm -hmm. but um, I wanted to take the opportunity uh, with you here to get your comments about uh, the differential impact on women of color in America. Do you have any comments to make about that? I, um, <laughs> I there's, uh, there's, yes, of course, I'm sure. I, I just want to point to one thing real quickly, and then, of course, I'm thrilled that you're going to be able to comment on this. I, of course, am on Facebook, but mainly because my children are. <laughs> and yes, I have been that mom that they have to chastise when I do the wrong thing. Right. But, <laughs> um, but my daughter uh, connected me uh, with a wonderful Facebook presence called Black Women Do Breastfeed. Mm -hmm. And it's awesome. Yeah. And I'll just, just point to that. And by way of um, giving a shout out to them because they've just done such a beautiful job. Um, so yeah, take it, take it from the top there. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> totally love black women to breastfeed. I mean, certain, I mean, uh, 
groups like that. I am also a co-founder of Black Breastfeeding Week, which is a oh. national celebration of breast black breastfeeding, um, which occurs the last week of August. So we know August is Breastfeeding Awareness Month. The first mm-hmm. week is World Breastfeeding Week. And the last week is Black Breastfeeding Week. And that is, this year will be the fourth year of um, Black Breastfeeding Week. And we're super excited about, you know, kind of like the millions of supporters that we get and things like that. So, and Black Women Do Breastfeed is, is I mean, initiatives like that are very important in kind of changing the narrative, right? Because there's been a story that Black women don't breastfeed. And because there is a story that Black women don't breastfeed, then physicians mm-hmm continuously don't talk to black women about breastfeeding because they feel like they have a limited amount of time and why bother with somebody's not going to do it. And then nurses yeah. don't support them and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and so the idea that we actually do breastfeed is really, really important. Um, for over 40 years, there has been a uh, embarrassing racial disparity in breastfeeding rates between black women and white women, and that disparity need not exist. Um, we also know there has been a history of insidious infant formula marketing that was specifically targeted to our communities, to black and brown communities that really, um, you know, set women up to fail at breastfeeding. And this was more severe in low-income communities, um, particularly with those types of uh particularly where they were low income and 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 um and dependent on some public assistance. The other thing that we know is that we think about historical trauma. So many times when we when I travel the country and go to areas, particularly in the South, where they have very strong matriarchal cultures and very strong multi-generational family structures, right? We know that what older relatives believe, think, and support is very influential on young mothers, right? And many of them rely on these relatives for childcare. So if big mama says you're not breastfeeding or she's not going to, she doesn't know how to take care of a baby with breast milk or human milk, then it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and what also, speaking of historical trauma, you know, we are very aware that during slavery, black women were stopped from breastfeeding their own children to breastfeed the children of their white slave owners. And the historical trauma of being forced to do something for somebody else has continued. So many times, particularly when you speak to older African-Americans, they may have a negative connotation to breastfeeding. Think of it as something we were forced to do during slavery, something we did for other people, uh, something we did not do for ourselves. And so really countering that narrative is critically important for us now as we kind of reclaim a tradition that was stolen from us. Um, The reason why we were used as feeders was because we were good at it and we did it often. Right. Mm-hmm. So so that 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 history, that that culture was taken from us. And so we really have to try to reclaim it. So, you know, that's one of the things that's really, really important. Um, we also know that black women's bodies, we don't even, we didn't even get into body politics of, you know, the shaming that goes on with all women about their bodies. Um, you know, when breastfeeding, we know in this country we use breasts to sell chicken wings and beer. But if people see an infant feeding on one, they're all of a sudden uncomfortable. So we have this hypersexualization of the breast, which is particularly unique when it comes to black women and their bodies. So all of these things are about breastfeeding. I mean, when we say breastfeeding is about everything, I really do believe that. Um, So, um, and these issues that are issues for all often hit um, communities of color the hardest um, in in addition to the historical trauma that was already there. So there is much work to be done. Mm -hmm. I was just going to insert and tell me if this is is anywhere in the ballpark 
Oh, correct. You know, when you, in terms of that historical trauma, when you take, you know, the slave mother's baby away from that breast, you are dooming that baby unless there's another mama who's available there are countless so, historical narratives showing that uh, mother's own children died because they were forced to breastfeed the slave owner's children. Multiple narratives. And right. remember, we think about, I mean, when you are a slave, you do not own your children, right? So even right. the idea of ownership was a, was a concept that Black mothers were denied. And none of us, and I always say this, none of us can relate, can, can even think about our children not belonging to us and the idea our children could be taken away from us at any minute. I mean, it's just it's just something we can't even fathom, nor do we want to. And so when we think about the historical trauma of not just breastfeeding, but the motherhood experience, we really have to understand that when we say to Black women, breast is best, we're not even, <laughs> we're just really, I call it silly talk, right? Because we are we are not acknowledging the complicated history with which many Black women may arrive at breastfeeding we are not acknowledging the historical trauma of their motherhood experiences, and we do not have to go far into current news events to see how Black mothers today feel that we do not own our children and may not be able to protect our children. And I say that as a mother of a Black boy who was 12 years old and, and everything to me. So again, these are very real traumas that can that continue. And so when we think about breastfeeding, we really have to shape our conversation with women of color in in the context of their experience and what's happening to them right now. You have just, as I knew you would be, been fabulous. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I want to thank you both for this important work that you're doing, creating conversations and multiple platforms for being able to engage in conversations about birth and, and motherhood are so important. So I'm very grateful to be here to, to share my, my work and lend that to the conversation but I am very honored to be in the space of women who have been doing it much longer and continue to do it. So thank you so much for having me. And may I just say one thing, mm-hmm. because we ended on that note, I do mm-hmm. would love to say to your audience that we just launched a, uh, a a nationwide book donation campaign called The Big Letdown Lifts Up, where mm-hmm. I am collecting, um, I'm asking for book donations, which I am taking to low-income women in Detroit and Philadelphia, which have been my two pilot cities that I work with for the Kellogg Foundation. And so if you go to KimberlySealsHours.com, you can get a, a lovely thank you gift. We have a few prizes and donations. I've been given, but we are asking people to make sure that all women have access to information, right? Because we know there's been a privilege about who receives information and we want to break that cycle as well. So if you're, if any of your audience members are interested in donating a book um, for the lift up cause, please check it out and um, follow me as I go to Detroit and Philadelphia and bring these books to the community and really make sure that all women have multiple levels of information about the breastfeeding environment. You can find out more about Esther Gallagher on estergallagher.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again, bicycle man I know you're doing all that you can I 
I wrote the song, simple and true. I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you. You got your wheels, you got your gears, you ride around town with any fear. You got your pedals, you got your brakes. Always wear your helmet for safety's Song, I sing a song for you. 